Christianity as Mystical Fact and the Mysteries of Antiquity by Dr. Rudolf Steiner An Adult Brain Audiobook Production Read by Graham Dunlop Preface to the Second Edition Christianity as Mystical Fact was the title given by the author to this work when, eight years ago, he gathered into it the substance of lectures delivered by him in 1902. The title indicated the special character of the book. In it, the attempt was made not merely to represent historically the mystical content of Christianity, but to describe the origin of Christianity from the standpoint of mystical contemplation. Underlying this intention was the thought that, at the genesis of Christianity, mystical facts were at work which can only be perceived by such contemplation. It is only the book itself which can make clear that by mystical, its author does not imply a conception which relies more on vague feelings than on strictly scientific statements. It is true that mysticism is at present widely understood in the former sense, and hence it is declared by many to be a sphere of the human soul life with which true science can have nothing to do. In this book, the word mysticism is used in the sense of the representation of a spiritual fact, which can only be recognized in its true nature when the knowledge of it is derived from the sources of spiritual life itself. If the kind of knowledge drawn from such sources is rejected, the reader will not be in a position to judge of the contents of this book. Only one who allows that the same clearness may exist in mysticism as in a true representation of the facts of natural science, will be ready to admit that the content of Christianity as mysticism may also be mystically described. For it is not only a question of the contents of the book, but first and foremost of the methods of knowledge by means of which the statements in it are made. Many there are in the present day who have a most violent dislike to such methods which are regarded as conflicting with the ways of true science. And this is not only the case with those willing to admit other interpretations of the world than their own, on the ground of genuine knowledge of natural science, but also with those who as believers wish to study the nature of Christianity. The author of this book stands on the ground of a conception which sees that the achievements of natural science in our age must lead up into true mysticism. In fact, any other attitude as regards knowledge actually contradicts everything presented by the achievements of natural science. The facts of natural science itself indeed cannot be comprehended by means of those methods of knowledge which so many people would like to employ to the exclusion of others, under the illusion that they stand on the firm ground of natural science. It is only when we are prepared to admit that a full appreciation of our present admirable knowledge of nature is compatible with genuine mysticism, that we can take the contents of this book into consideration. The author's intention is to show, by means of what is here called mystical knowledge, how the source of Christianity prepared its own ground in the mysteries of pre-Christian times. In this pre-Christian mysticism, we find the soil in which Christianity throve as a germ of quite independent nature. This point of view makes it possible to understand Christianity in its independent being, even though its evolution is traced from pre-Christian mysticism. If this point of view be overlooked, 
It is very possible to misunderstand that independent character and to think that Christianity was merely a further development of what already existed in pre-Christian mysticism. Many people of the present day have fallen into this error, comparing the content of Christianity with pre-Christian conceptions, and then thinking that Christian ideas were only a continuation of the former. The following pages are intended to show that Christianity presupposes the earlier mysticism just as a seed must have its soil. It is intended to emphasize the peculiar character of the essence of Christianity, through the knowledge of its evolution, but not to extinguish it. It is with deep satisfaction that the author is able to mention that this account of the nature of Christianity has found acceptance with a writer who has enriched the culture of our time in the highest sense of the word by his important works on the spiritual life of humanity. Edouard Chouret, author of Le Grand Initié, is so far in accord with the attitude of this book that he undertook to translate it into French under the title Le Mystère Chrétien et le Mystère Antique. Note, this book is to be had in an English translation by F. Rothwell under the title of The Great Initiates. A Sketch of the Secret History of Religions by Edward Charest, Pub, Ryder and Son, London. It may be mentioned, by the way, and as a symptom of the existence at the present time of a longing to understand the nature of Christianity as presented in this work, that the first edition was translated into other European languages besides French. The author has not found occasion to alter anything essential in the preparation of the second edition. On the other hand, what was written eight years ago has been enlarged, and the endeavor has been made to express many things more exactly and circumstantially than was then possible. Unfortunately, the author was obliged, through stress of work, to let a long period elapse between the time when the first edition was exhausted and the appearance of the second. Rudolf Steiner, May 1910 1. Points of View Natural science has deeply influenced modern thought. It is becoming more and more impossible to speak of spiritual needs and the life of the soul without taking into consideration the achievements and methods of this science. It must be admitted, however, that many people satisfy these needs without letting themselves be troubled by its influence. But those who feel the beating of the pulse of the age must take this influence into consideration. With increasing swiftness do ideas derived from natural science take possession of our brains. And unwillingly, though it may be, our hearts follow, often in dejection and dismay. It is not a question only of the number thus won over, but of the fact that there is a force within the method of natural science, which convinces the attentive observer that the method contains something which cannot be neglected and is one by which any modern conception of the universe must be profoundly affected. Many of the outgrowths of this method compel a justifiable rejection, but such rejection is not sufficient in an age which very many resort to this way of thinking and are attracted to it as if by magic. The case is in no way altered because some people see that true science long ago passed by its own initiative beyond the shallow doctrines of force and matter taught by materialists. It would be better, apparently, to listen to those who boldly declare that the ideas of natural science will form the basis of a new religion. 
If these ideas also appear shallow and superficial to one who knows the deeper spiritual needs of humanity, he must nevertheless take note of them, for it is to them that attention is now turned, and there is reason to think they will claim more and more notice in the near future. Another class of people have also to be taken into account, those whose hearts have lagged behind their heads. With their reason, they cannot but accept the ideas of natural science. The burden of proof is too much for them. But those ideas cannot satisfy the religious needs of their souls. The perspective offered is too dreary. Is the human soul to rise on the wings of enthusiasm to the heights of beauty, truth, and goodness, only for each individual to be swept away in the end like a bubble blown by the material brain? This is a feeling which oppresses many minds like a nightmare. But scientific concepts oppress them also, coming as they do come with the mighty force of authority. As long as they can, these people remain blind to the discord of their souls. Indeed, they console themselves by saying that full clearness in these matters is denied to the human soul. They think in accordance with natural science so long as the experience of their senses and the logic of their intellect demand it. But they keep to the religious sentiments in which they have been educated and prefer to remain in darkness as to these matters, a darkness which clouds their understanding. They have not the courage to battle through to the light. There can be no doubt whatever that the habit of thought derived from natural science is the greatest force in modern intellectual life, and it must not be passed by heedlessly by anyone concerned with the spiritual interests of humanity. But it is nonetheless true that the way in which it sets about satisfying spiritual needs is superficial and shallow. If this were the right way, the outlook would indeed be dreary. Would it not be depressing to be obliged to agree with those who say, Thought is a form of force. We walk by means of the same force by which we think. Man is an organism which transforms various forms of force into thought force. An organism, the activity of which we maintain by what we call food, and with which we produce what we call thought. What a marvelous chemical process it is which could change a certain quantity of food into the divine tragedy of Hamlet. This is quoted from a pamphlet of Robert G. Ingersoll, bearing the title, Modern Twilight of the Gods. It matters little if such thoughts find but scanty acceptance in the outside world. The point is that innumerable people find themselves compelled by the system of natural science to take up with regard to world processes an attitude in conformity with the above, even when they think they are not doing so. It would certainly be a dreary outlook if natural science itself compelled us to accept the creed proclaimed by many of its modern prophets. Most dreary of all for one who has gained from the content of natural science the conviction that in its own sphere its mode of thought holds good and its methods are unassailable. For he is driven to make the admission that, however much people may dispute about individual questions, though volume after volume may be written, and thousands of observations accumulated about the struggle for existence and its insignificance, about the omnipotence or powerlessness of natural selection, natural science itself is moving in a direction which, within certain limits, must find acceptance in an ever-increasing degree. But are the demands made by natural science really such as they are described by some of its representatives? That they are not so is proved by the method employed by these representatives themselves. 
The method they use in their own sphere is not such as is often described and claimed for other spheres of thought. Would Darwin and Ernst Haeckel ever have made their great discoveries about the evolution of life if, instead of observing life and the structure of living beings, they had shut themselves up in a laboratory and there made chemical experiments with tissue cut out of an organism? Would Lyle have been able to describe the development of the crust of the earth if, instead of examining strata and their contents, he had scrutinized the chemical qualities of innumerable rocks? Let us really follow in the footsteps of these investigators who tower like giants in the domain of modern science. We shall then apply to the higher regions of spiritual life the methods they have used in the study of nature. We shall not then believe we have understood the nature of the divine tragedy of Hamlet by saying that a wonderful chemical process transformed a certain quantity of food into that tragedy. We shall believe it as little as an investigator of nature could seriously believe that he has understood the mission of heat in the evolution of the earth when he has studied the action of heat on sulfur in a retort. Neither does he attempt to understand the construction of the human brain by examining the effect of liquid potash on a fragment of it, but rather by inquiring how the brain has, in the course of evolution, been developed out of the organs of lower organisms. It is therefore quite true that one who is investigating the nature of spirit can do nothing better than learn from natural science. He need only do as science does but he must not allow himself to be misled by what individual representatives of natural science would dictate to him. He must investigate in the spiritual as they do in the physical domain, but he need not adopt the opinions they entertain about the spiritual world, confused as they are by their exclusive contemplation of physical phenomena. We shall only be acting in the spirit of natural science if we study the spiritual development of man, as impartially as the naturalist observes the sense world. We shall then certainly be led, in the domain of spiritual life, to a kind of contemplation which differs from that of the naturalist as geology differs from pure physics and biology from chemistry. We shall be led up to higher methods, which cannot, it is true, be those of natural science though quite conformable with the spirit of it. Such methods alone are able to bring us to the heart of spiritual developments, such as that of Christianity or other worlds of religious conceptions. Anyone applying these methods may arouse the opposition of many who believe they are thinking scientifically. But he will know himself, for all that, to be in full accord with a genuinely scientific method of thought. An investigator of this kind must also go beyond a merely historical examination of the documents relating to spiritual life. This is necessary just on account of the attitude he has acquired from his study of natural history. When a chemical law is explained, it is of small use to describe the retorts, dishes, and pincers which have led to the discovery of the law. And it is just as useless when examining the origin of Christianity to ascertain the historical sources drawn upon by the evangelist St. Luke, or those from which the hidden revelation of St. John is compiled. History can, in this sense, be only the outer court to research proper. It is not by tracing the historical origin of the documents that we shall discover anything about the dominant ideas in the writings of Moses or in the traditions of the Greek mystics. These documents are only the outer expression for the ideas. Nor does the naturalist who is investigating the nature of man trouble about the origin of the word man or the way in which it is developed in a language. He keeps to the thing 
not to the word in which it finds expression. And in studying spiritual life, we must likewise abide by the Spirit and not by outer documents. 2. The Mysteries and Their Wisdom A kind of mysterious veil hangs over the manner in which spiritual needs were satisfied during the older civilizations by those who sought a deeper religious life and fuller knowledge than the popular religions offered. If we inquire how these needs were satisfied, we find ourselves led into the dim twilight of the mysteries, and the individual seeking them disappears for a time from our observation. We see how it is that the popular religions cannot give him what his heart desires. He acknowledges the existence of the gods, but knows that the ordinary ideas about them do not solve the great problems of existence. He seeks a wisdom which is jealously guarded by a community of priest-sages. His aspiring soul seeks a refuge in this community. If he is found by the sages to be sufficiently prepared, he is led up by them step by step to higher knowledge, in places hidden from the eyes of outward observers. What then happens to him is concealed from the uninitiated. He seems for a time to be entirely removed from earthly life and to be transported into a hidden world. When he reappears in the light of day, a different, quite transformed person is before us. We see a man who cannot find words sublime enough to express the momentous experience through which he has passed. Not merely metaphorically, but in a most real sense, does he seem to have gone through the gate of death and to have awakened to a new and higher life. He is, moreover, quite certain that no one who has not had a similar experience can understand his words. This was what happened to those who were initiated into the mysteries, into that secret wisdom withheld from the people and which threw light on the greatest questions. This secret religion of the elect existed side by side with the popular religion. Its origin vanishes, as far as history is concerned, into the obscurity in which the origin of nations is lost. We find this secret religion everywhere amongst the ancients, as far as we know anything concerning them and we hear their sages speak of the mysteries with the greatest reverence. What was it that was concealed in them, and what did they unveil to the initiate? The enigma becomes still more puzzling when we discover that the ancients looked upon the mysteries as something dangerous. The way leading to the secrets of existence passed through a world of terrors, and woe to him who tried to gain them unworthily. There was no greater crime than the betrayal of secrets to the uninitiated. The traitor was punished with death and the confiscation of his property. We know that the poet Asclius was accused of having reproduced on the stage something from the mysteries. He was only able to escape death by fleeing to the altar of Dionysus and by legally proving that he had never been initiated. What the ancients say about these secrets is significant, but at the same time ambiguous. The initiate is convinced that it would be a sin to tell what he knows and also that it would be sinful for the uninitiated to listen. Plutarch speaks of the terror of those about to be initiated and compares their state of mind to preparation for death. A special mode of life had to precede initiation, tending to give the spirit the mastery over the senses. Fasting, solitude, mortifications, and certain exercises for the soul were the means employed. The things to which man clings in ordinary life were to lose all their value for him, 
The whole trend of his life of sensation and feeling was to be changed. There can be no doubt as to the meaning of such exercises and tests. The wisdom which was to be offered to the candidate for initiation could only produce the right effect upon his soul if he had previously purified the lower life of his sensibility. He was introduced to the life of the spirit. He was to behold a higher world, but he could not enter into relations with that world without previous exercises and tests. The relations thus gained were the condition of initiation. In order to obtain a correct idea on this matter, it is necessary to gain experience of the intimate facts of the growth of knowledge. We must feel that there are two widely divergent attitudes toward that which the highest knowledge gives. The world surrounding us is to us at first the real one. We feel, hear, and see what goes on in it, and because we thus perceive things with our senses we call them real, and we reflect about events in order to get an insight into their connections. On the other hand, what wells up in our soul is at first not real to us in the same sense. It is merely thoughts and ideas, at the most we see in them only images of reality. They themselves have no reality, for we cannot touch, see, or hear them. There is another way of being connected with things. A person who clings to the kind of reality described above will hardly understand it, but it comes to certain people at some moment in their lives. To them, the whole connection with the world is completely reversed. They then call the images which well up in the spiritual life of their souls actually real and they assign only a lower kind of reality to what the senses hear, touch, feel, and see. They know that they cannot prove what they say, that they can only relate their new experiences, and that when relating them to others, they are in the position of a man who can see and who imparts his visual impressions to one born blind. They venture to impart their inner experiences, trusting that there are others around them whose spiritual eyes though as yet closed, may be opened by the power of what they hear. For they have faith in humanity and want to give it spiritual sight. They can only lay before it the fruits which their spirit has gathered. Whether another one sees them depends on his spiritual eyes being opened or not. There is something in man which at first prevents him from seeing with the eyes of the spirit. He is not there for that purpose. He is what his senses are and his intellect is only the interpreter and judge of them. The senses would ill fulfill their mission if they did not insist upon the truth and infallibility of their evidence. An eye must, from its own point of view, uphold the absolute reality of its perceptions. The eye is right as far as it goes, and is not deprived of its due by the eye of the spirit. The latter only allows us to see the things of sense in a higher light. Nothing seen by the eye of sense is denied, but a new brightness, hitherto unseen, radiates from what is seen. And then we know that what we first saw was only a lower reality. We see that still, but it is immersed in something higher, which is spirit. It is now a question of whether we realize and feel what we see. One who lives only in the sensations and feelings of the senses will look upon impressions of higher things as a fata morgana or mere play of fancy. His feelings are entirely directed towards the things of sense. He grasps emptiness when he tries to lay hold of spirit forms. They withdraw from him when he gropes after them. They are just mere thoughts. He thinks them, but does not live in them. 
They are images less real to him than fleeting dreams. They rise up like bubbles while he is standing in his reality. They disappear before the massive, solidly built reality of which his senses tell him. It is otherwise with one whose perceptions and feelings with regard to reality have changed. For him, that reality has lost its absolute stability and value. His senses and feelings need not become numbed, but they begin to be doubtful of their absolute authority. They leave room for something else. The world of the spirit begins to animate the space left. At this point, a possibility comes in which may prove terrible. A man may lose his sensations and feelings of outer reality without finding any new reality opening up before him. He then feels himself as if suspended in the void. He feels as if he were dead. The old values have disappeared and no new ones have arisen in their place. The world and man no longer exist for him. This, however, is by no means a mere possibility. It happens at some time or other to everyone who is seeking for higher knowledge. He comes to a point at which the spirit represents all life to him as death. He is then no longer in the world, but under it, in the nether world. He is passing through Hades. Well for him if he not sink. Happy if a new world open up before him. Either he dwindles away or he appears to himself transfigured. In the latter case, he beholds a new sun and a new earth. The whole world has been born again for him out of spiritual fire. It is thus that the initiates describe the effect of the mysteries upon them. Menippus relates that he journeyed to Babylon in order to be taken to Hades and to be brought back again by the successors of Zarathustra. He says that he swam across the great water on his wanderings and that he passed through fire and ice. We hear that the mystics were terrified by a flashing sword and that blood flowed. We understand this when we know from experience the point of transition from lower to higher knowledge. We then feel as if all solid matter and things of sense had dissolved into water and as if the ground were cut away from under our feet. Everything is dead which we felt before to be alive. The spirit has passed through the life of the senses as a sword pierces a warm body. We have seen the blood of sense nature flow. But a new life has appeared. We have risen from the netherworld. The orator Aristides relates this, I thought I'd touched the god and felt him draw near, and I was then between waking and sleeping. My spirit was so light that no one who is not initiated can speak of or understand it. This new experience is not subject to the laws of lower life. Growth and decay no longer affect it. One may say much about the eternal, but words of one who has not been through Hades are mere sound and smoke. The initiates have a new conception of life and death. Now for the first time do they feel they have the right to speak about immortality. They know that one who speaks of it without having been initiated talks of something which he does not understand. The uninitiated attribute immortality only to something which is subject to the laws of growth and decay. The mystics, however, did not merely desire to gain the conviction that the kernel of life is eternal. According to the view of the mysteries, such a conviction would be quite valueless. For this view holds that the eternal is not present as a living reality in the uninitiated. If such an one spoke of the eternal, he would be speaking of something non-existent. It is rather the eternal itself that the mystics are seeking. They have first to awaken the eternal within them, then they can speak of it. Hence the hard saying of Plato is quite real to them. 
that the uninitiated sinks into the mire and that only one who has passed through the mystical life enters eternity. It is only in this sense that the words in the fragment of Sophocles can be understood. Thrice blessed are the initiated who come to the realm of the shades. They alone have life there. For others there is only misery and hardship. Is one therefore not describing dangers when speaking of the mysteries? Is it not robbing a man of happiness and of the best part of his life to take him to the portals of the netherworld? Terrible is the responsibility incurred by such an act. And yet, ought we to refuse that responsibility? These were the questions which the initiate had to put to himself. He was of opinion that his knowledge bore the same relation to the soul of the people as light does to darkness. But innocent happiness dwells in that darkness, and the mystics were of opinion that that happiness should not be sacrilegiously interfered with. For what would have happened in the first place if the mystic had betrayed his secret? He would have uttered words and only words. The feelings and emotions which would have invoked the spirit from the words would have been absent. To do this preparation, exercises, tests, and a complete change in the life of sense were necessary. Without this, the healer would have been hurled into emptiness and nothingness. He would have been deprived of what constituted his happiness, without receiving anything in exchange. One may also say that one could take nothing away from him, for mere words would change nothing in his life of feeling. He would only have been able to feel and experience reality through his senses. Nothing but a terrible misgiving, fatal to life, would be given him. This could only be construed as a crime. The wisdom of the mysteries is like a hothouse plant, which must be cultivated and fostered in seclusion. Anyone bringing it into the atmosphere of everyday ideas brings it into air which it cannot flourish. It withers away to nothing before the caustic verdict of modern science and logic. Let us therefore divest ourselves for a time of the education we gain through the microscope and telescope and the habit of thought derived from natural science, and let us cleanse our clumsy hands, which have been too busy with dissecting and experimenting in order that we may enter the pure temple of the mysteries. For this a candid and unbiased attitude of mind is necessary. The important point for the mystic is at first the frame of mind in which he approaches that which to him is the highest, the answers to the riddles of existence. Just in our day when only gross physical science is recognized as containing truth, it is difficult to believe that in the highest things we depend upon a keynote of the soul. Knowledge thereby becomes an intimate personal concern. But this is what it really is to the mystic. Tell someone the solution of the riddle of the universe. Give it him ready-made. The mystic will find it to be nothing but empty sound if the personality does not meet the solution halfway in the right manner. The solution in itself is nothing. It vanishes if the necessary feeling is not kindled at its contact. A divinity approaches you. It is either everything or nothing. Nothing if you meet it in the frame of mind with which you confront everyday matters. Everything if you are prepared and attuned to the meeting. What the divinity is in itself is a matter which does not affect you. The important point for you is whether it leaves you as it found you or makes another man of you. But this depends entirely on yourself. You must have been prepared by a special education, by a development of the inmost forces of your personality for the work of kindling and releasing what a divinity is able to kindle and release in you. 
What is brought to you depends on the reception you give to it. Plutarch has told us about this education and of the greeting which the mystic offers the divinity approaching him. For the God, as it were, greets each one who approaches him with the words, Know thyself, which is surely no worse than the ordinary greeting, Welcome. Then we answer the divinity in the words, Thou art, and thus we affirm that the true primordial and only adequate greeting for him is to declare that he is. In that existence we really have no part here, for every mortal being situated between birth and destruction merely manifests in appearance a feeble and uncertain image of itself. If we try to grasp it with our understanding, it is as when water is tightly compressed and runs over merely through the pressure, spoiling what it touches. For the understanding, pursuing a too definite conception of each being that is subject to accidents and change, loses its way, now in the origin of the being, now in its destruction, and is unable to apprehend anything lasting or really existing. For, as Heraclitus says, we cannot swim twice in the same wave, neither can we lay hold of a mortal being twice in the same state. For through the violence and rapidity of movement, it is destroyed and recomposed. It comes into being and again decays. It comes and goes. Therefore, that which is becoming can neither attain real existence, because growth neither ceases nor pauses. Change begins in the germ and forms an embryo. Then there appears a child, then a youth, a man, and an old man. The first beginnings and successive ages are continually annulled by the ensuing ones. Hence it is ridiculous to fear one death, when we have already died in so many ways and are still dying. For as Heraclitus says, not only is the death of fire the birth of air, and the death of air the birth of water, but the same change may be still more plainly seen in man. The strong man dies when he becomes old, the youth when he becomes a man, the boy on becoming a youth, and the child on becoming a boy. What existed yesterday dies today. What is here today will die tomorrow. Nothing endures or is a unity, but we become many things, whilst matter wanders around one image, one common form. For if we were always the same, how could we take pleasure in things which formerly did not please us? How could we love and hate, admire and blame opposite things? How could we speak differently and give ourselves up to different passions, unless we were endowed with a different shape, form, and different senses? For no one can rightly come into a different state without change, and one who is changed is no longer the same. But if he is not the same, he no longer exists and has changed from what he was, becoming something else. Sense perception only led us astray, because we do not know real being and mistook for it that which is only an appearance. Plutarch often describes himself as an initiate. What he portrays here is a condition of the life of the mystic. Man acquires a kind of wisdom by means of which his spirit sees through the elusive character of sense life. What the senses regard as being, or reality, is plunged into the stream of becoming, and man is subject to the same conditions in this respect as all other things in the world. Before the eyes of his spirit he himself dissolves, the sum total of his being is broken up into parts, into fleeting phenomena. Birth and death lose their distinctive meaning and become moments of appearing and disappearing, just as much as any other happenings in the world. The highest cannot be found in the connection between development and decay. 
It can only be sought in what is really abiding, in what looks back to the past and forward to the future. To find that which looks, i.e. the spirit, backwards and forwards is the first stage of knowledge. This is the spirit, which is manifesting in and through the physical. It has nothing to do with physical growth. It does not come into being and again decay, as do sense phenomena. One who lives entirely in the world of sense carries the spirit latent within him. One who has pierced through the illusion of the world of sense has the spirit within him as a manifest reality. The man who attains to this insight has developed a new principle within him. Something has happened within him, as in a plant when it adds a colored flower to its green leaves. It is true the forces causing the flower to grow were already latent in the plant before the blossom appeared, but they only became effective when this took place. Divine spiritual forces are latent in the man who lives merely through his senses, but they only become a manifest reality in the initiate. Such is the transformation which takes place in the mystic. By his development he has added a new element to the world. The world of sense made him a human being endowed with senses, and then left him to himself. Nature had thus fulfilled her mission. What she is able to do with the powers operative in man is exhausted. Not so the forces themselves. They lie as though spellbound in the merely natural man and await their release. They cannot release themselves. They fade away to nothing unless man seizes upon them and develops them, unless he calls into actual being what is latent within him. Nature evolves from the imperfect to the perfect. She leads beings through a long series of stages, from inanimate matter through all living forms up to physical man. Man looks around and finds himself a changing being with physical reality, but he also perceives within him the forces from which the physical reality arose. These forces are not what change, for they have given birth to the changing world. They are within man as a sign that there is more life within him than he can physically perceive. What they may make man is not yet there. He feels something flash up within him which created everything, including himself, and he feels that this will inspire him to higher creative activity. This something is within him. It existed before his manifestation in the flesh and will exist afterwards. By means of it he became, but he may lay hold of it and take part in its creative activity. Such are the feelings animating the mystic after initiation. He feels the eternal and divine. His activity is to become a part of that divine creative activity. He may say to himself, I've discovered a higher ego within me, but that ego extends beyond the bounds of my sense existence. It existed before my birth and will exist after my death. This ego has created from all eternity. It will go on creating in all eternity. My physical personality is a creation of this ego, but it has incorporated me within it. It works within me. I am a part of it. What I henceforth create will be higher than the physical. My personality is only a means for this creative power, for this divine is within me. Thus did the mystic experience his birth into the divine. The mystic called the power that flashed up within him a daemon. He was himself the product of this daemon. It seemed to him as though another being had entered him and taken possession of his organs, a being standing between his physical personality and the all-ruling cosmic power, the divinity. The mystic sought this, his daemon. He said to himself, I have become a human being in mighty nature, but nature did not complete her task. 
This completion I must take in hand myself. But I cannot accomplish it in the gross kingdom of nature of which my physical personality belongs. What it is possible to develop in that realm has already been developed. Therefore, I must leave this kingdom and take up the building in the realm of the spirit at the point where nature left off. I must create an atmosphere of life not to be found in outer nature. This atmosphere of life was prepared for the mystic in the mystery temples. There the forces slumbering within him were awakened. There he was changed into a higher creative spirit nature. This transformation was a delicate process. It could not bear the untempered atmosphere of everyday life. But when once it was completed, its result was that the initiate stood as a rock, rising from the eternal and able to defy all storms. But it was impossible for him to reveal his experiences to anyone unprepared to receive them. Plutarch says that the mysteries gave deep understanding of the true nature of the daemons. And Cicero tells us that from the mysteries, when they are explained and traced back to their meaning, we learn the nature of things rather than that of the gods. From such statements, we see clearly that there were higher revelations for the mystics about the nature of things than that which popular religion was able to impart. Indeed, we see that the daemons, i.e. spiritual beings, and the gods themselves needed explaining. Therefore, initiates went back to beings of a higher nature than daemons or gods, and this was characteristic of the essence of the wisdom of the mysteries. The people represented the gods and daemons in images borrowed from the world of sense reality. Would not one who had penetrated into the nature of the eternal doubt about the eternal nature of such gods as these? How could the Zeus of popular imagination be eternal if he bore within him the qualities of a perishable being? One thing was clear to the mystics, that man arrives at a conception of the gods in a different way from the conception of other things. An object belonging to the outer world compels us to form a very definite idea of it. In contrast to this, we form our conception of the gods in a freer and somewhat arbitrary manner. The control of the outer world is absent. Reflection teaches us what we conceive as gods is not subject to outer control. This places us in logical uncertainty. We begin to feel that we ourselves are the creators of our gods. Indeed, we ask ourselves how we have arrived at a conception of the universe that goes beyond physical reality. The initiate was obliged to ask himself such questions. His doubts were justified. Look at all representations of the gods, he might think to himself. Are they not like the beings we meet in the world of sense? Did not man create them for himself by giving or withholding from them, in his thought, some quality belonging to beings of the sense world? The savage lover of the chase creates a heaven in which the gods themselves take part in glorious hunting, and the Greek peopled his Olympus with divine beings whose models were taken from his own surroundings. The philosopher Xenophanes, B.C. 575-480, drew attention to this fact with a crude logic. We know that the older Greek philosophers were entirely dependent on the wisdom of the mysteries. We will afterwards prove this in detail, beginning with Heraclitus. What Xenophanes says may at once be taken as the conviction of a mystic. It runs thus, Men who picture the gods as created in their own human forms give them human senses, voices, and bodies. But if cattle and lions had hands and knew how to use them like men in painting and working, they would paint the forms of the gods and shape their bodies as their own bodies were constituted. 
Horses would create gods in horse form, and cattle would make gods like bulls. Through insight of this kind, man may begin to doubt the existence of anything divine. He may reject all mythology and only recognize as reality what is forced upon him by his sense perception. But the mystic did not become a doubter of this kind. He saw that the doubter would be like a plant were it to say, My crimson flowers are null and futile because I am complete within my green leaves. What I may add to them is only adding elusive appearance. Just as little could the mystic rest content with gods thus created, the gods of the people. If the plant could think, it would understand that the forces which created its green leaves are also destined to create crimson flowers, and it would not rest till it had investigated those forces and come face to face with them. This was the attitude of the mystic towards the gods of the people. He did not deny them or say they were illusion, but he knew they had been created by man. The same forces, the same divine element, which are at work in nature, are at work in the mystic. They create within him images of the gods. He wishes to see the force that creates the gods. It comes from a higher source than these gods. Xenophanes alludes to it thus, There is one god greater than all gods and men. His form is not like that of mortals. His thoughts are not their thoughts. This god was also the god of the mysteries. He might have been called a hidden god, for man could never find him with his senses only. Look at outer things around you. You will find nothing divine. Exert your reason. You may be able to detect the laws by which things appear and disappear, but even your reason will not show you anything divine. Saturate your imagination with religious feeling, and you may be able to create images which you may take to be gods, but your reason will pull them to pieces for it will prove to you that you created them yourself and borrowed the material from the sense world. So long as you look at outer things in your quality of simply a reasonable being, you must deny the existence of God. For God is hidden from the senses, and from that reason of yours which explains sense perceptions. God lies hidden spellbound in the world, and you need his own power to find him. You must awaken that power in yourself. These are the teachings which were given to the candidate for initiation. And now there began for him the great cosmic drama with which his life was bound up. The action of the drama meant nothing less than the deliverance of the spellbound God. Where is God? This was the question asked by the soul of the mystic. God is not existent, but nature exists, and in nature he must be found. There he is found an enchanted grave. It was in a higher sense than the mystic understood the words, God is love. For God has exalted that love to its climax. He has sacrificed himself in infinite love. He has poured himself out, fallen into number in the manifold of nature. Things in nature live and he does not live. He slumbers within them. We are able to awaken him. If we are to give him existence, we must deliver him by the creative power within us. The candidate now looks unto himself as latent creative power as yet without existence, the divine is living in his soul, and the soul is a sacred place where the spellbound God may wake to liberty. The soul is the mother who is able to conceive the God by nature. If the soul allows herself to be impregnated by nature, she will give birth to the divine. God is born from the marriage of the soul with nature, no longer a hidden but a manifest God. He has life, a perceptible life, wandering amongst men. He is the God freed from enchantment, the offspring of the God who is hidden by a spell. He is not the great God, 
who was and is and is to come, but yet he may be taken in a certain sense as the revelation of him. The Father remains at rest in the unseen. The Son is born to man out of his own soul. Mystical knowledge is thus an actual event in the cosmic process. It is the birth of the divine. It is an event as real as any natural event only enacted upon a higher plane. The great secret of the mystic is that he himself creates his God, but that he first prepares himself to recognize the God created by him. The uninitiated man has no feeling for the father of that God, for that father slumbers under a spell. The son appears to be born of a virgin, the soul having seemingly given birth to him without impregnation. All her other children are conceived by the sense world. Their father may be seen and touched, having the life of sense. The divine son alone is begotten of the hidden, eternal, divine father himself. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.